are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Virginia, and today we have special guest Wendy Kopp in the studio. Wendy is the founder and former CEO of Teach for America, one of the most influential nonprofit organizations in the United States. She launched Teach for America as a result of her senior thesis at Princeton University in an effort to marshal the energy of her generation against educational inequity in America. Today, more than 6,000 Teach for America Corps members, outstanding recent college graduates and professionals of all academic disciplines, are in the midst of two-year teaching commitments in over 50 regions. Wendy then founded Teach for All in 2007, enabling independent NGOs to apply Teach for America's model in more than 35 countries worldwide. Besides developing leadership in classrooms and communities for an improved future of children, the global organization serves as a platform for members to continue to learn from and network with each other to improve their individual and collective impact. Let's get right into the bottom line. Thanks so much, Wendy, for joining us. We're going to start off with a topic that's especially relevant to us as college students. You came up with the idea for Teach for America when you were a senior in college, and in fact used your senior thesis to research a proposal for the idea. What advice do you have for other college students who discover an idea they love, but aren't sure whether or not they want to pursue it as a full-time venture? I, I think the question you need to ask yourself is whether this idea is worthy of you're just dedicating your, going all in on it. Like, you know, persevering through the inevitable challenges that will come your way, sticking with it over time, because these ventures often entail much more than we anticipate at the front end, um, and, and just going through the inevitable learning curves involved. I think that although it's hard to generalize, that's a great way of thinking about it. Now, going back to your original idea, what inspired you to start thinking about education and education recruiting in terms of a completely new business model different from the solutions that were already out there? Um, so when I was a senior in college, I found myself really for the first time in a complete funk. I just could not figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I also couldn't figure out what I wanted to propose in my thesis. I mean, I was really, I think, just searching for something that I wasn't finding in terms of a way to make a real difference in the world. And I got this sense that I wasn't alone, that there were thousands of graduating seniors out there just searching for a way to assume a significant responsibility and, and make a real difference. Um, and as I searched for that for myself, one of the things that I became just super aware of was how the extent to which I felt like the whole world was open to me. And I, I felt like I could do anything. And I knew that that was because of the that I had just happened to have the chance to have because of where I was, where I grew up, um, and then to have the chance to go to Princeton. And so, you know, as a public policy major who was very concerned about the inequities of our country and whatnot, um, I started thinking about this issue of the fact that you know, in a place that aspires to be a, a place of equal opportunity, we're really not one. And it starts because, you know, or at least a huge part of that is because kids don't have equal access to a quality education. Um, so that's what led to this idea. You know, at the time, all the 
opportunities for graduating seniors like myself, liberal arts grads, were investment banks and management consulting firms banging down our doors saying, commit just two years. And I just thought to myself, why aren't we being recruited as aggressively to commit just two years to teach in urban and rural public schools? So that, that became the idea. And I knew that it was never going to be about just two years, right? Like people would commit just two years to those firms saying, I'm going to, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm going to do those, that. I'll learn a lot and then I'll go do something else. And they would go to business school and back into those firms. And so I thought, what if the first thing people did out of school was commit two years to teach? Like that would change everything, like their career trajectories, their priorities. I thought it would change the consciousness of our country in terms of our kind of commitment to addressing the inequities. I'm sure that it won't surprise you to know that even today at Harvard, I would say the first tier of recruiters remain consulting firms and investment banks, which can sometimes overshadow other opportunities that are out there for people to make a difference in different ways. So I think it's great that Teach for America is working to overcome that challenge and contribute to diversifying the recruiting scene. It's also my understanding that Teach for America is able to recruit students who may have not had any past experience in education. How do you train teachers and prepare them for this unfamiliar and maybe even challenging work environment? Well, it's, it's an incredibly challenging, you know, pursuit to say the least. Um, and I think our approach, first of all, what we've seen is that essentially teaching successfully in, in an under-resourced context is, you know, it requires tremendous leadership. Um, and because you're needing to, you know, figure out where you want to what you want to achieve and, and really build the relationships with students and families and others in the school. And, and then you have to find additional resources, like really reaching outside of the constraints of, of the system and, and persevere mightily in, in pursuit of this vision, you know, working with all the kids and, and families in, in your room. So the first thing, all of the Teach for All organizations do is work to recruit and select folks who have really strong demonstrated leadership potential, who have achieved significant goals despite challenges, um, who can build strong relationships with others and and motivate them, um, who will persevere in the face of challenges and have proven that. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of it is starting with people who, who have demonstrated the potential to succeed in this. Um, then there's tremendous investment in training and ongoing support. I think what we've seen and what the research would show too is that it's, it's very challenging and maybe impossible to prepare people to be ready for this. Like so much of it comes from, you know, starting in and the coaching and support you get along the way. And I think one of the, um, advantages of the structure of the Teach for All organizations and of Teach for America is that the training and support starts with a pre-service orientation, but then extends during the two years so that there can be, you know, most of the resources are put into the ongoing coaching and professional development that um, the teachers receive. I should say, I mean, we've learned and continue to learn just a tremendous amount about what differentiates the teachers who are most successful working with kids in low-income communities and developing them 
towards a holistic set of outcomes so that they're developing the critical thinking skills and problem solving skills and sense of agency and awareness of the world so that they have what it takes to kind of to lead their own futures. Um, and those lessons that we've learned about what the mindsets and skills are that differentiate teachers who can do that and about how they grow and develop has done a lot to influence the actual curriculum um, and the coaching models that we employ and just work to continuously improve over time. How does Teach for America go about initially attracting these types of leaders? And how do you differentiate yourself from recruiters attracting entry-level talent for more traditional industry jobs? Um, Well, I think, you know, we do what other recruiters do in terms of, you know, outreach, whether it be on social media or through, uh, most importantly, personal relationships with students on campus. I mean, we found that to attract the people we most want requires finding our way to them and building relationships with them over time. Um, I think, you know, this, these organizations present an opportunity for kids to, not kids, I shouldn't say, but, you know, young people, recent graduates, young professionals to assume such a significant level of leadership responsibility right out of college and to have, to make an incredible impact. I mean, you think about being given whether it's, you know, 30 kids or, you know, 120 or 150 kids if you're teaching at the secondary level um, for each of two years, and you have the potential to make an indelible impact on those students' lives. Um, and at the same time, you know, through committing two years to this, you're joining a group of people you will work together with for the rest of your lives to address what is actually a very systemic problem. I mean, we need every person to commit as many years as possible to being incredible teachers, right? And we're one source of more of those people. But what you realize when you get into this is that we can't solve this very systemic problem through heroic teaching alone. We really need to change the system, which means redesigning schools, redesigning school systems, taking pressure off the schools in the first place um, by improving social services and even you know, economic development in, in urban and rural communities and such. Um, and so what Teach for America and the other Teach for All organizations are working to do is to develop collective leadership to ensure all kids fulfill their potential um, through taking this issue on as the systemic challenge that that it is. So it's a chance to be, I mean, I always think of this as, as the path of no regrets, you know, two years to make a huge impact that, and relationships that you will take with you the rest of your lives and to also gain proximity to the systemic inequities in our country, um, which is something that you will then work off of for the rest of your life, like however, whatever you want to do, if you want to go into business, I mean, we need business people who understand this, we need policymakers and elected officials who have gained that kind of proximity and that kind of understanding. And, And we also need these folks to have the relationships that they have as part of the kind of broader you know, Teach for America alumni community so that they can work together across sectors. It seems like it's both the mission and excitement for the type of experience that Teach for America provides that makes it such a compelling model, not only for America, but also on a global scale. 
I'm now going to pass it off to Georgia, who's going to chat with you about these global efforts. Thanks so much, Jess, and thank you, Wendy, for being here with us today. First of all, my sister is a kindergarten teacher, so I know firsthand how important good teachers are. And I love what you said about helping all students reach their full potential. So 13 years ago, you started Teach for All, which led you to expand your efforts globally. What inspired this new model and what have you learned from working on a global scale? So I had my head down, you know, fully focused on the U.S. Um, until, as you say, maybe 13 or 14 years ago. Um, it had never occurred to me that that this approach we were taking in the U.S. might have applicability in other countries. But most importantly, you know, the inequities in our country are massive and there was just so much more to be done. And I was just fully focused on, on growing Teach for America to be bigger and, and better. Um, but what happened is that there was something in the water in the rest of the world. I mean, literally within one year, I had met 13 people in 13 different countries from India to Lebanon to Chile to the next place who were just determined to, to see something similar happen in their countries. Um, and so they were looking for help and it became kind of overwhelming and we realized we need to, to decide how to approach this. And that's what led to the design of and launch of Teach for All as a network of independent, locally led, governed organizations in now 53 countries and growing. And there are another 30 in the pipeline in every region of the world. So organizations calling upon their country's most promising leaders to channel their energy into this arena of working with the most marginalized children in their countries, um, initially through committing two years to teach, and just like Teach for America, investing in their ongoing development as, as a force for change. I think what we've seen over the last 13 years in this, maybe two main things, I would say. One, you've seen the same movie playing in all these different countries in terms of the leadership effects of this approach. So, you know, the hearts, minds, and souls drawn to the work, the impact they have, and that studies show that they have for kids and, and on their broader school environments, but very importantly, the impact they have beyond the two-year commitment. So we're seeing all around the world, 70% of the people who commit just two years never leave education. Many more do other things that are in and around improving the quality of life in low-income communities. And what we've seen is that even, you know, at a very young age with people often in their 20s and 30s, we see them assuming such significant leadership roles, becoming school principals and, and working in their ministries to determine education policy or launching social enterprises, just as we've seen um, happen in, in the U.S. in communities uh, across the country. So that's one thing we've seen is that there's just something about this approach that becomes kind of an unparalleled provider of the kind of leadership we need in education. Um, the second thing we've seen is that as much as it's true that transformational change in education requires deeply locally rooted leadership, like people who are deeply rooted in local context and culture and history, it's also true that those local leaders can move much faster if they are learning from each other in, in communities around the world. And so we've seen that 
and, and probably hadn't even predicted this, but that because the roots of the issues we're addressing are so similar across the world, like the roots of the inequities we're addressing, the solutions are a lot more shareable than we've assumed. And so we have the potential to grow this force of locally rooted but globally informed leaders who are parts of networks with each other all over the world so that they don't just have to start over and reinvent the wheel in every place. We've seen this play itself out, particularly in this era that we're in right now with schools shut down, because you can imagine for teachers all over the world, they realize, and educators at every level of the system, that they're facing very similar challenges. And so we've seen the impact of this. I mean, I was just on a Zoom call, you know, alumni of these organizations from around the world who are working in their ministries and are charged with figuring out when and how to reopen schools in a way that balances the risk to disadvantaged kids of keeping schools closed, which is massive, with the health risks involved. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds, 1,500 teachers in WhatsApp groups sharing strategies about how to teach without the internet, who and many, many testimonials about how they've been able to leverage the resources shared from other countries to create new curricular materials and everything else in different countries. Um, and those are just two of many, many examples. That's incredible work you all are doing. And you touched on this a little, but how can the education system succeed under the constraint of online learning? And what do teachers and policymakers and even students need to be doing to adjust to COVID-19? Well, one thing we've seen firsthand is just how far we are from kids truly having, you know, the internet access and the technology to be able to access online learning. I mean, across Africa, most estimates say that 90% of the kids don't have, you know, a way to connect regularly. Um, and even in the U.S., I mean, I've been talking with teachers and alumni who are estimating that maybe 25% of the kids in the communities where Teach for America works actually have access to regular ongoing learning in terms of the kind of connectivity and devices they would need. So I think the first thing to recognize is that we are far from having the kind of technology capacity to actually move to online learning. Um, that said, what I would say is that the so, I mean, of course, that leads to lots of concerns about the digital divide, and we, we should all find ways of addressing that. I will say the biggest divide I think you can see across any level of, of technology access right now is, is between the students who have teachers who have strong relationships with them and those who don't. I mean, we've seen even in the most technology-rich environments that if you don't have a teacher constantly like engaging you and maybe your parents as well, it's tough to keep kids ongoingly engaged. Um, and that's just enormously true in the communities where Teach for All organizations are working, where kids have so much less connectivity. And yet we've seen that ongoing learning can absolutely happen. I was just, um, you know, on a call with a, one of the teachers in Uganda who literally stayed in his community as 50 students every night. He writes out 50 sets of instructional materials and has them distributed through like community leaders so that the kids, and then he gets back 
the work. And he literally said, actually, this whole thing has enabled me to differentiate instruction to such a degree that I actually know my kids will come back better off than when we were all together in one room with 50 kids. And actually, we're seeing that even across, like many, many teachers are using WhatsApp to, to work with their kids, sending assignments, getting it back. And it's just, it's led to a different level of differentiation that they're now planning to fully continue once they get back into schools. You know, there was a teacher in, in Pakistan um, who created something called a WhatsApp school where she has all of her girls. I think, again, she has 50 girls in her classes, but she said it'll never be the same. Like, we're going to continue the WhatsApp school even when we come back. Um, so th those are a few thoughts. I mean, overall, I, I would say that what we have been learning about the pedagogical approach that's important when we are all in school is the same stuff that's important, you know, when we're out of school. So like teachers who build strong relationships with their students and the students' parents, teachers who can facilitate learning, like foster a sense of community among the students and help them create, have the space to kind of co-create knowledge rather than attempting to just lecture at kids, you know, through, through a Zoom. Like there's so much more you can do um, that, that will actually keep kids engaged and, and foster the kind of critical thinking skills that, that we're all looking for. It's wonderful to hear your perspective, especially given how you have all these anecdotes from around the world and teacher and alumni experiences. What you said about the co-creation of knowledge is something that really resonates with me, but it can be really hard to measure that. So how are you able to gauge the effectiveness of the programming Teach for America and Teach for All does? And how do you measure your impact on the scale ranging from individual students to the broader education system? Yes, that's a huge question. Um, and we do measure impact on each of those levels. So first of all, you know, through our own, you know, these network organizations own internal measurement systems, but also through independent studies, we look at the question of whether the teachers are fostering both the academic growth and the non-academic growth of their students. Um, so for example, there was a study of Enseñapur, Mexico, which looked at, was one of the first studies to look at the impact of teachers on socio-emotional development, like students' sense of self-efficacy, their growth mindset, their self-management in terms of ability to set goals and, and kind of own their education. And it showed positive effects of the Enseño for Mexico teachers on their students' development in those regards. But that's one of many, many growing numbers of studies looking at the immediate impact of the teachers. That said, given our ultimate objectives, we need to look at these two other levels. So first of all, do the teachers themselves develop the foundations for strong ongoing leadership during the course of the two years? We've been working with some independent researchers to look at that question across five different countries, um, and they've found incredible effects actually. Um, they've found significant shifts and it's so interesting to see the same shifts across five different countries but in mindsets and beliefs like the degree to which the teachers believe in the potential of low-income kids and their families, um, their understanding of the nature of the problem and the solutions, like they come in thinking the solutions are very technical like more funding, that's what everyone comes in thinking, that's the solution they come out realizing that this is such a complex challenge and that the solutions are much more adaptive in nature. And finally, they 
career trajectories, many, many more likely to spend um, and to commit their careers to education or to, to the social sector. Um, and then the final and maybe most important thing we need to look at is whether over time, the presence of the Teach for All organization in communities actually changes outcomes for kids. Like, are we successful in producing the leadership necessary to actually change systems? Um, and what we can see in the US where Teach for America has been working for 30 years is lots of examples of communities where you know, we've moved the needle, we, the grand collective, we far beyond Teach for America, like we've seen significant growth in outcomes like student graduation rates and proficiency levels and college going rates and college graduation rates. Um, and then there's a question of what contributed to that. Um, and in many communities across the country, and, and finally there are new independent studies being launched to look at this question more rigorously. But I think about, you know, many examples from you know, Chicago public schools where low-income kids are making six years of progress within five years, within five grade levels, which is very unusual in a low-income context, um, where the college graduation rate of the Chicago public kids has moved from 9% to 9% in the course of a decade. Um, and, you know, there are many things that have contributed to those outcomes, but it is also true if you took out all the Teach for America teachers and alumni, a thousand teachers who are alumni, you know, 300 people working in school leadership, including 80 school principals and many other assistant principals, including the principals of most of the most transformational schools there. Um, you take away so many people working at the district levels and across the NGO space, including many of the most significant social enterprises that have contributed to those ends that were founded by Teach for America alumni. Um, and, and so that's the kind of thing we ultimately have to look at, like, to what extent do, do these leadership effects add up to the systemic change that, that we need to see? That's really interesting. And it seems like you all have found a really successful balance between quantitative and qualitative metrics when considering your impact. So now I'm going to pass it off to Virginia for our final question. Yes, yeah, so thank you so much again for doing this interview. What you've said is just incredibly valuable. And I really love especially one thing that you mentioned was it's, you know, it's not just about funding. That's not how you make an impact. People think, oh, we can throw more money into the government system and you're just doing so much more beyond that. So thank you. Um, so we want to end with our question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what is your hottest take? I would say, you know, that if we want to achieve sustainable development, meaning, you know, we want to see, you know, that we can see sustainable development in low-income communities in the U.S., sustainable development all around the world in under-resourced contexts, like, that the most important thing we need to do is foster kind of the development of human agency and leadership development that when we're thinking about what we need to do first, when we, we consider what we need to do to foster sustainable development, we should first think about investing in people. Um, I hope that by the time I'm, you know, have to stop this work, hopefully I'll be at it another 30 years, that finally people will have embraced that. And still to this day, I mean, every day, all day long, 
I basically try to help people understand if you want to change systems, invest, like make an intentional effort to cultivate the leadership capacity you need to change those systems. Instead, we put most of our um, international development dollars into investments in infrastructure or scaling very discrete kind of technical interventions. It's almost like we tell researchers and others to go into a building like the big glass buildings, like figure out like what does the data show? And then we're going to rain down those interventions in developing contexts around the world. And everything I've seen tells me that that's not the way to achieve sustainable progress, that the way to do it is to recognize um, that wherever we see development progress, we see local leadership to recognize that that local leadership can be developed through an intentional approach and to prioritize those investments that start by cultivating the leadership of the people within communities. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to find us online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, email us at hello at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.